Welcome to Industry Insights, a podcast for, by, and about the film industry from the Berlinale's European film market, produced in cooperation with Goethe Institute and co-funded by the Creative Europe Media Program. Today's episode was developed in partnership with the Nostradamus Project at the Göteborg Film Festival. And my name is Johanna Koljonen. I'm a media analyst, strategic consultant and experience designer based in Sweden. I'm also the author of the annual Nostradamus Report, which looks at the near future of the screen industries. This year's report is the 10th and will be released in May. And I'm just starting the fascinating yearly work of talking to practitioner experts from across the industry about what they see on the horizon. This podcast is a part of that process that we'll get today to experience together to try to catch up with the fast-changing film and TV drama financing landscape. When last year's Nostradamus report came out, we could just see the beginning of new financial pressures on the streamers and therefore on their content spend. It was also clear that a cost-of-living crisis would affect household economies, possibly affecting media behaviors. And obviously we knew that Russia's brutal invasion of Ukraine would affect public spending across Europe, which might down the line affect arts budgets too. Eight months later, it's time to take stock of what's happened so far and where the experts think we are going next from their different perspectives. My first guest is Linda Beeth, film financing expert, business consultant and CEO of Ideal Filmworks Italia. Welcome to the show, Linda. Thank you, Joanna. It's a pleasure to be here. I uh, I have... Uh, I mean, your, your bio summarizes this very well. She organizes and raises production financing, often via international co-production, attracting broadcasters, distributors, sales agents, regional and national funds and tax incentives. So we can almost deduce from this uh, that, that this kind of financing uh, is especially relevant for independent producers. And, and, uh, and often I think you work, work also with smaller uh, production companies. Is that right? Yes, um, a lot of time I work with producers who've made one or two features, but not necessarily producers. Um, I think I used this as an example before, but um, not necessarily producers who've won uh, major awards, who have much more uh, flexibility and much more positivity from the, the best sources of financing. I know we've said over several years now that it is sort of the mid-sized movie or the and the as as well as the sort of unestablished uh, talent that are finding uh, financing harder and harder to come by. Do, do, would you say that that's the tendency we've seen in the last several years? Yes, and there is one factor that we can't miss out, and that's how competitive financing is. So, for example, at Eurimage for feature films, um, it used to be, you know. 10 or 15 films out of 40, it's now 10 or 15 films out of 60 or 80. So the amount of competition to get, you know, what we would consider um, fairly normal sources of funding is much greater than it was before. There's been a kind of truism that a strong project will always find its audience. Uh, and I'm, I guess we've also assumed that, this, that these systems are more or less meritocratic so that of course, the best projects will always get the funding. You're laughing. That doesn't seem realistic I'm to you. I'm sorry. <laughs> yes, I am. <laughs> would, you, would you expand on, on that? It takes a lot of talent to read a script and spot a great film. It takes um, 
an enormous background in uh, having read scripts and seen the results, um, knowing how directors direct, et cetera, et cetera. So when you say we think it's the best films, we're dealing with, in some cases, politicians who are reading their first scripts making decisions. So I, I just don't believe in the best film will win. It's the, it's the producer who can pitch it best who's more likely to win than the best script. This is, I mean, we could make a whole different show on this topic, but, but pitching a script and writing a script or pitching a script and directing a film are completely separate skills. I've realized the longer totally I'm, separate I'm skills. doing this. Yeah. Yeah. And so, when I say pitching, it could be uh, on paper only with, you know, sh- show reels and, and great biogs and things like that, or it could be in person. But um, the story that a director will tell versus a story that a producer will sell are very different. Yes. So if we're looking at this last year or so, uh, have you seen, from your perspective, dramatic changes in the financing landscape? There was, um, on, the, on the level of SVOD, uh, the streamers were ordering a lot too much, and then they stopped ordering. Then they canceled uh, already ordered original content. So I think the streamers... Um, are settling down to supporting original content, but um, much more rational, um, much much more sustainable for them. And um, unfortunately, they haven't changed the deal for the independent producer, but I would say that a lot less uh, is being ordered by the streamers. The second thing is that um, I... And, and maybe Frederick will want to, to jump in here. Um, what I'm seeing is that the uh, advertising on television is going down so that the television stations actually have less to spend on original content. In that case, I say let's at this in point introduce our second guest. Frederica Manbori is managing director of Echo Rights. Uh, this right management company describes itself as a development agent and a distributor of drama series. You have offices in Stockholm, Istanbul, London, Madrid and Seoul and license about 17,000 hours of drama. Frederick, welcome to the show. Thank you very much. Lovely to be here on such an important and inspiring subject. Yeah, so I mean, if we're looking at the dramatic changes in the last year, uh, what are what are your observations? Do they align with Linda's? Mm, I don't know. Uh, I mean, we're not really looking at financing shows. We our aim is to, I mean, we do that of course, but our aim is to make producers make a good profit on their shows because we think that's what you should deserve when you have developed such a and uh, such a beautiful thing as an as a hit TV series. So our aim is to uh, keep the rights with the producers and represent them, but of course also get the budget together so we can produce the show together with the producer, but then uh, license it uh, and selling it worldwide. We do two type of deals. I mean, historically, obviously, a series was produced somewhere and then sold to the world. Then all the streamers came in and said, oh, we want everything. We make a cost plus model where you where we, um, we take all your rights and thank you very much and you get 15% margin. And uh, we, we have been waiting for that to loosen up because it's, an, it's a very unfair and unproductive model in my, my view. What is coming, the big trend in the last year, I think, is that uh, streamers understand that they can't buy everything for the whole world of everything. 
Uh, and uh, they also understand that they miss the best projects if they continue with that, because who would take their top project with such a business model? So there we are helping producers to invest in more in development, because obviously if you come to anyone and just have an idea and say, can, we, can you finance my entire development, then they, the likeliness for the other party to take a big chunk of your rights is, is quite high. So we develop more, we finance more, but ultimately we're moving into something uh, that is called, that we call acquired co-production, meaning that because traditionally <clears throat> content on TV and platform has been uh, getting there um, um, through either uh, original commissioning or from acquisition. And those worlds have been quite apart, separate apart. But we see that being more and more mixed together, which all makes sense because ultimately if you run a platform, if it's your own commission where you sit and make notes to the script or if it's something that you acquire. It doesn't really matter in the end, at least from a business-wise, because you need to have a, a, the best series and get the best uh, whatever, uh, viewer attraction. <clears throat> so, and I think Netflix was quite pioneering on that, on actually taking acquisition, making that their most important series and calling it originals and, and then launching it successfully in the world. So we've done some really interesting case and we're doing that more and more because quite frankly, we're flooded by producers who've done a few cost plus deals with, with platforms and uh, said, uh, I mean, I think the worst case is, is uh, Squid Games. That was the mo world's most watched TV series last year. And it was produced at a budget of 20 million and the internal value, uh, I don't know how it leaked out, but, or if it's true, but it was estimated at Netflix at the value of a thousand million dollars. And of course, the producer gets nothing out of this $980 million in created value and also not even uh, an automatic right to even make the second season. And that, that model is, is, I mean, they got, they got whatever, 10, 15, 20% of the budget in margin. That's an old American studio model that the platforms has imported. We have done some really interesting cases lately where we, uh, where we uh, uh, make sure we have an anchor broadcaster somewhere then we have it commissioned and then we go in and finance a bit more and then we do pre-sales. So we have some really, we have two big, one American, um, um, one American, big American European co-production done by uh, Matt Hastings who did Handmaid's Tale. We have financed the whole thing and with Anchor is, is Globo in Brazil. Uh, and that's the only right that we've issued. We're just getting the first episode and we're launching it now at, at, at the London screening fully. And we sell the rights in pieces to the different platforms. We have another one called uh, Vanishing Triangle from Ireland, produced by um, Elon Arania, who did uh, Tehran and uh, Your Honor. And that we, we financed a, a quite a bit, but basically we had 5% of the budget from from uh, Virgin Island, that was all that we managed to sell originally, and then we sold it to to Sundance in the US, Acorn in the in the UK, public service, and the, around. and And quite soon after Greenlight, we were fully financed. So that I think that um, platforms tend to go more to acquisition than uh, buying everything for the whole world, and I think that's a very uh, positive development. And and of course, uh, as you're as you're implying, then the consequence is that it's possible in a completely different way to retain rights and have and have a very different deal. Uh, and and I mean, I I felt it was a little bit sort of shocking to hear you start by saying that producers would earn money. Producers have for a long time not earned a lot of of money, and that's not just the. I mean, certainly on the film side, uh, that's that's not just because of streamers. It's because of a bunch of of market changes. Linda, I saw you nodding uh, before uh, when Frederick was talking. What were you thinking? 
Um, the, the first thing I was, um, uh, I wanted to say is that the European Producers Club, which is an organization of independent producers in Europe, have issued a set of requests for different kinds of reporting, different kinds of deals, different kinds of property rights. And it's a very short four-point um, deal on their website, but I think that Frederick covered all of their demands very effectively. So if producers want to find out more, head to the European Producers Club. The second thing is that, Frederick, you're outlining something that I think is happening a lot more, and that is that each project, whether it's a TV series or an animated series or a feature film or whatever, feature documentaries even, are requiring more and more broadcasters in order to be fully financed, in order to, to be able to be produced. And uh, I think what you're doing is, is reflected around uh, Europe and, and North America at the moment. Yeah, but I mean, I think ultimately it's, um, it's a way, because we are in many different markets. We, are, uh, um, we have a quite substantial share of a Turkish drama market where we produce um, a, a large number of series. And that's a very interesting case. Uh, throughout all the markets that we are in, the source markets where we basically produce, I think the, it's interesting to see where the producer retain rights and manage them can be done by law, like term whatever, or semi-law, like terms of trade in the UK, or in Turkey, where the producers historically have had a very close cooperation and said 50% of international sales is with us, and uh, we get all rights back after five years. It, ha it has also been a law there. And that, without that, if all the rights would have stayed in Turkey with the broadcasters, we would have seen nothing of the success that they have experienced. They've gone from being nothing to the second world's largest exporter of TV drama in the world. So, Frederick, just so I understand, and that's because the, the broadcasters don't necessarily have the inclination or the like. their sales organizations may not be as motivated as, as the producers themselves. Or, or how do you mean? Yes, of course, because think of it. You develop a TV show, you're passionate about this idea, you're ready to do anything to make it a success, as most producers in the world. And then the principle of some huge corporation with hundreds of shows taking all your rights, that's, 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 that's not very efficient and it's not very motivated. It ends up in a catalog where nobody knows about it. I've endless of producers who've been coming to the distribution arm of, of where in the countries where they have a tradition of buying everything and asking about their show and they don't even know that they have it. Uh, so That's like, heartbreaking. Yeah. Yes, it's heartbreaking. <laughs> so uh, what, what I'm trying to say, and I think we see some interesting things in France where producers now are getting rights back from platforms after quite a short window. Those market, that market structure is very uh, incentivizing and, and, uh, and very powerful and very dynamic when the producer is actually getting part. That's why I'm reacting on the, let's say, the classic European view of uh, coming from public service, I guess we should get the financing together. I don't like it. I don't think, you know, of course you have to get the financing together, but you need to make a good, you, you need to develop something fantastic and, and be passionate about that. But you also need to get a business model where you actually make money if it's a success. So instead of getting the budget together, I would like to make a very profitable project. 
Yeah, it changed the language, yeah. I very definitely agree with you. I mean, I'm when I'm talking about getting the money together, it's to cover the cost of production. But I want the cost of production covered in such a way that um, the potential for sales and the potential for revenue is kept as high as possible. I mean, going being at film markets like like just now in Yatavori last week, you will hear people say in all seriousness that because of the the, the struggles in the theatrical window, the business model of, of feature film is fundamentally broken, and and that the, for feature films to be profitable is is just not possible. And and it feels like some people have have given up on this. Linda, have you given up on feature film? Not at all, not at all. But I I say that to you. Um, as somebody who <clears throat> who executive produces, I'm not capable of making the script better or the casting work more effectively. Um, I'm really um, more about marketing and more about uh, financing and building in uh, the ability to, uh, for example, uh, sell. I really, for feature films, it's not like uh, big TV libraries. They're, they're, um, a lot of the best sellers have eight to 12 films per year, and they really focus on getting maximum sales. So I think it's possible uh, to make money with feature films, and I think that it's um, a producer's job to make sure that everything is in order, particularly... Uh, things like marketing so that those sales can be made. But I think there is a lot of um, opportunities coming up because ultimately, I mean, the American studios has been very dominant and by the whole transformation to um, streamers and so it, that whole system has has been kind of crackling seriously. But what SF Studios in Sweden did when they had a hit local movie called um, a, a, man called, a Man Called Ove, and uh, that was a blockbuster movie here, and everybody loved it. And then they got interest from the U.S. And instead of giving the rights to an American studio and getting uh, fighting for a back-end participation and getting a symbolic license fee, they went in and said, we produce it ourselves. They went to their mother company, who happened to have sold TV4 before to, to Telia, uh, and asked, can we get 50 million in, uh, in, uh, in borrowing that from you? And they got Sorry, that. 50 million what? Uh, Euros. Yes. Dollars, I don't know exactly, a lot of money. Mm. And they produced it themselves and then sold the distribution to Sony, I believe. And uh, now it was with Tom Hanks in the, in the main role and performed. I think it brought in 35 in the first weekend or something. So um, that's, a, that's a very inspiring project from a European, let's say, local uh, producer. Of course, they're big in Sweden, but they're not that big. And just by thinking differently and challenging the existing existing structures and I'm sure they will make a good profit uh, from this project and they I assume retain all the IP and there is something about this mindset I mean yes many things have become quite difficult in the last 10 years as as we've acclimatized to this world uh, with with uh, with the streamers as, as commissioners and as players in the market and the way they're changing the window structure but at the same time we have also now, now we are taking for granted that our, our content can travel in the world um, and that it can absolutely, that we can be like a Swedish studio can be players, for instance, in an international market and make a Tom Hanks movie that is serious. And it's not like a, an embarrassing Euro pudding like, like we used to back in the day. 
No, but I think one thing that Netflix did and certainly still are doing is to break down the boundaries that uh, it has to be in English to be uh, a global hit. If you take the top five list of the most successful TV series in the last year, I think three of them were non-English language. Uh, Casa de Papel, uh, Squid Game and uh, I think Lupin or something. Uh, so I think that, that has been very, very encouraging for anybody producing in or It doesn't really matter which language you produce in anymore, but that also means that you need to think a bit differently and be a bit more bold and be better financed, I think, if you're going to develop world hits from non-English language um, territories because people are not really used to it. And I think Turkey was the most, uh, it's the best example of actually just somebody happening to be in the pole position of a culture in the world and what works in Turkey happened to work for billions of people around the world and they sell their series suddenly for 50 million per series from nothing. Uh, that's a, that, that, uh, we've been a part of it and I think it's a super interesting both creatively and, and business-wise certainly an um, example of how the world has been changing. But, uh, and their producers has become, they are super well financed and making a lot of money. Uh, rightfully so, because they do fantastic series. Great. Um, uh, we have now been joined by our third guest, uh, Petri Kempinen, the CEO at Aurora Studios, the, the fastest growing mini studio in Finland, uh, as, as you will yourself. And also you will have an opportunity here to talk a little bit about the Finnish Impact Film Fund. Now, of course, you haven't heard what the others have said so far. We've talked a little bit about uh, the... Uh, effects that the that the streamers sort of backing away a little bit on the commissioning side and perhaps uh, acquisition becoming more important uh, that the effects that that has, has is having on the financing landscape and to my extreme joy Linda has says, said that she has not lost hope about uh, about feature film so it's absolutely possible to make money uh, on features as well so uh, welcome to the show Petri Thanks a lot, Johanna. Thanks for inviting me. It's great to be in this company. So, I mean, is there an immediate question that I need to ask? I'm happy to hear that Linda is supportive of feature films possibilities. I would love to see that money as well. I mean, since we have been, I mean, struggling here in Finland with the theatrical, I mean, for half a year after the pandemic. And I mean, it's not at all going to be been going well. And there is an overflow of productions coming out and... Uh, None of us is really, I mean, happy about the situation. But of course, we are hoping for the best. And uh, yeah, let's see how things turn out with the feature films. I mean, it's much more safer at the moment to be doing TV drama series than feature films as a producer, I would say. Yeah, I mean, and I guess both can be true that TV shows are, quote unquote, safer because it's clearer how they're going to work. The risk is smaller. Yeah. Uh, and at the same time that that features have... Uh, uh, this great potential, but I think that maybe you 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 hit the nail on the head there when you said that there's a kind of overproduction uh, in your local market. Not every feature film will make it, and it's not entirely clear that making fewer titles is necessarily bad for the industry in Europe or glo- globally. I mean, if we start with what's with 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 the question I asked the others, what changes have you observed uh, observed in the last um, year or so? Uh, will there be fewer Finnish film titles next year, for instance, than there was were last year? What I've noticed, I mean, in Finland is that some of the titles have been cancelled and postponed. I mean, they have not been going into production because of some issues related to the financing. And I think that people are much more wary about the situation at the moment, that they don't really, I mean, take the risks uh, 
as they used to take before. So this is a big change, which is, of course, for the good, because that's how you should be operating. I've seen a puzzle in a way, if you want to put together a bigger production, you need to work with so many different parties, financiers, I mean, so many stakeholders. So the puzzle is much more complicated than it used to be and uh, taking longer time because everybody is kind of slowing down, even the broadcasters, at least. And I know that this is all, all around in the Nordics as well. So in a way, I mean, I think the financing puzzle is much more bigger and widespread. And I mean, it takes a lot of time and energy, I mean, much more than before. So that's interesting. Frederick, uh, of course, is, is a kind of financing partner. And Linda also talks, talked about being in the position of an executive producer who is working specifically on the, on the financing and the marketing side and not on, on the creative side. Is it too much for the, for the producers who are, on, who are producing the content of the films, who are working on the creative side, to actually do all of this financing work? Because I know, I mean, historically, up until very recently, a lot of producers who would absolutely do both, especially if they're working for small production companies. No, I think our our idea as a company is to work very closely with producers. We basically represent producers. I think the inspiration for our company came when I worked a lot in in with with in the U.S. ten years ago. And there is always an agent uh, running the business side of it, and and then you have the producers. And I think there is something quite because what we do, we we have soon fifty people in our offices around, and we do we do financing and distribution of of TV series and. We love to work with producers, and we love to make them make money and and to keep the IP. Uh, but it is a bit of expertise because, as as you say, Petri, I think the financing of of TV series. I'm not an expert in movies, but it has become more complex with tax breaks and tax shelters and and the different funding and stuff. And also investors, we're connecting quite a few investors. So I think that combination. It also. Like I, sometimes I'm a bit brutal in saying it's like selling a house. It's good to have somebody to blame if it if it doesn't sell, <laughs> you know. But you have a real estate broker, and sometimes we see ourselves as being that part. So we go together with a producer in their home country, and we can if they have fantastic relationship with one platform, then then we can be the party taking it elsewhere. Because it's only when you're getting a market situation that you actually get a good deal with a buyer or the the financing. So to answer your question, yes. What do you say, Linda? I mean, does every producer need a Linda? Um, no, I don't think so. Um, we all need a Linda. <laughs> uh, first of all, when I'm financing a particular project, say a feature film, I always <clears throat> finance everything outside of the country. The producer's in and the producer does all the financing inside of the country. I don't think there's any choice there. But I think it's Im- impossible to really look after the creative demands of the project and try and put 27 different sources of financing together. And that's what the issue is these days, that there are so many sources of financing for a single project that expecting a producer to deal with all of them effectively is really uh, putting the quality of the project at risk. And especially if you're funding your next film while you're working on your current film, and because if you don't have a proper margin, how are you going to do that? And this is the problem, of course, that a lot of producers have experienced in the last several years. They've been so squeezed that at the end of the project, they have to be starting the next production directly. 
Well, and then there's the issue of deferrals. I mean, the amount of deferrals and the number of deferrals has gone up and up and up. So now it's considered completely normal that a producer defers his or her fees, which is appalling. So now it doesn't sound optimistic at all. Now, this is very worrying to me. I shouldn't have brought this up. <laughs> yeah. Petri, if you look at the, out at the, at the landscape, are you optimistic or, or, or not? Is this a good time to be a producer of both film and TV series? Uh, I am optimistic by nature, but I mean, if you can operate both on film and TV, that's already on an asset in a way. So you can actually, actually, I mean, adjust to the different market situations and to the changes. So that, that, that gives you a bit of an asset. If you are not only tied to the traditional ways of doing only, only one or the other, so that is one thing. And uh, then, then, I mean, I was just, trying to think, think about that, what, what other things that are concrete that have happened. I mean, for us, if we think about the Finnish Impact Film Fund, which we are also, I mean, mastering aside the company. So there are quite many situations where a producer who is an external production company to us uh, comes to us to talk when they have the commissioner with them and they already might have some other financing available, but they are lacking a gap. And this is because of the uh, costs getting higher. So I think as we have this private equity possibility, as also what Frederick was saying, that I mean, as an investor, we, we can really jump in into a project that, is, that has an upside. And thus we can help to make the project happen if we can I mean, see that there is an upside to it for us as a funder as a private funder. So in a way, I think this is a change because I didn't see that happening so much in the past and it's happening now much more. That is related to the fact that it's more complicated to the finance as both of us, both of you were mentioning earlier. But I think it's a feasible solution for for many of the producers to get some equity and uh, thus make the thing happen and have the possibility of uh, making your overhead and then I'm generating an upside for the other financiers. So in a way... But this suggests to me, if you're saying that, that you're seeing increased opportunities for private equity, then it means that, that the risk isn't uh, too big. I mean, for the private money to, to invest in a project, there needs to be a decent chance uh, of, of proper returns. Sometimes there are, of course, too high hopes, I think, but I don't think in general that it's not the case. No, but there are many, many different ways of financial needs, anything from financing during the cash flowing. And, but I think in general, the, it is tough and it's historically uh, a lot of factors in, in our industry that hasn't made it possible for investors to invest. For example, the transparency in the distribution. Uh, because if you go in and invest in one series and it's sold to somebody who sells the whole thing in packages and that's not transparent, you have no approval then uh, I think it's scary to be an investor because there are lots of different uh, allocation and things going on. Let's not overestimate, I mean, let's not, let's not exaggerate, but, but uh, I think there, we need to rethink a lot of models in this world. There is a lot of opportunity. I mean, it's almost, it's almost sad to see like the attitude among feature films producers that it's actually, <laughs> it's, there's no market and everybody are losing money. And so, I mean, what is uh, business-wise the difference between a feature film and a short TV series? It's basically the pilot plus a few more episode, episodes. So creatively, there's a lot of similarities and the TV, I mean, nobody can say anything about the TV series side has been completely booming the last years. So I think we need to rethink, we need to think it more as a business 
uh, separating maybe business and the creative. It is a creative industry, but it's not only. Uh, and um, to be clever, because after all, uh, what is lacking in the feature film side is the direct-to-consumer consumption that it has been actually... I mean, it was ridiculous on the on the Guldbagge Gala a few years ago because nobody in the audience has seen the, <laughs> the movies uh, because they were not available except if you took yourself to one of the cinemas that were open. I mean, that has in the same thing as Spotify changed uh, the music. We have to make it because obviously, of course, you pay uh, 10 euros to watch a great movie, even if you're sitting at home. So there are lots of things that the transformation to digital need to go through. But ultimately, the demand for what uh, what good drama producers are doing is higher than ever. I need to return to that, but let's, let's get Linda in, uh, you were saying. Oh, and as a side note, there are areas of growth for financing for features, and that includes um, the tax credits. Um, you know, they used to be 17%, 20%, and now you're seeing things like 45 and 50%. And uh, more investors are interested in feature films. What I think we need to be careful about with the investors is that they uh, get good reporting consistently yeah. and constantly, which is not happening, and that um, they understand the risk they're taking. If, if they're going to invest 50000 so they can wa- walk on the red carpet, we'll take the 50000 and we'll make sure they get on the red carpet. But if they're investing 250000 they need to have an assurance they're going to get their money back. So they have to have a position they can get it back. And I think that that's uh, the crux of the problem with features. So there is also something here about a cultural change, uh, as you're saying, critical in the in the creative industry. Like we need to, I mean, it sounds incredibly critical to say that we need to professionalize, but there is something about about let's say European art house where we have had this um, tradition that it's somehow not, it's a little bit uncouth somehow that it's a little bit sort of tacky to be very invested in the business side or to care deeply about money and or to talk about profit has been has been considered a little bit rude. But in fact, we we do have to talk about about profit as well. That it, in the sense that it it's also a, a way of of measuring the relevance of the of the work and and how well it connects with an audience, at least. And I think we need to talk more about how much money people are making, because when I'm in Turkey, when I'm quite a lot, everybody gossips who sold what to whom, and everybody <laughs> makes a lot of money. Uh, I I don't. Uh, I'm asking producers. Okay, what are the top selling TV series in the world? What are they in in the Nordics? What are the top most profitable TV series? Nobody has a clue. Uh, so it's like it's it's a it's a weird industry in that sense. Uh, to in, try and uh, break the part. taboo, at least, of talking Come about what, what we're making and how we're making the deals as well, so we can learn yes. from each other. I'm happy to so, gossip. So, Anybody call me. I'm happy to gossip how we do it and how you do it. <laughs> this is very important. So yeah, you mentioned directed to, to consumer. So I have a few sort of specific questions. One is how good are our producers on the TV side, on the film side, who are part of the sort of traditional industry? In, in leveraging uh, the newer platforms, and they're not even, I mean, they're 20 years old at this, at this point, but things like YouTube, for instance, uh, is, you know, or, or things like thinking about producing, perhaps uh, if you're working in short formats and making short films of, of, of placing those and monetizing those on the newer platforms. Is this something that the traditional film industry is up to date on? The answer is no, I don't think that they are so good. I think that the uh, traditional film industry is good at understanding the different 
the differences between film and TV drama because with the film, if they are doing art house films that are financed from multiple sources from different countries, they kind of understand the structure of TV dramas as well, where you have to, I mean, find different sources of financing for fun projects. So this concept they can, I mean, mentally understand that there are many people to talk to and so on. But with the younger audience and uh, with, I mean, YouTube and, I mean, TikTok, I mean, I'm, I'm such a boomer, I don't understand about that. And I, I believe that, I mean, quite many at my age have the same handicap, in a way. There are other people who are younger who can do that and are better at that. Uh, I think the direct-to-consumer uh, area is super interesting, and I think you're touching a very valid point there. Uh, a few years ago, we set up a team in Istanbul for our Turkish drama. We're now 20 people there. And they put up uh, all, uh, all Turkish series that we do with five different dubs uh, directly uh, to the whole world. And on some, we have like, for example, a daily series that we launched a year ago. There we are recovering the whole production series. It's a um, 200 people production um, on YouTube after just nine months. Wait, wait, say that again. You are, the full production budget is, co- is, re- is returned in nine months from you, YouTube. Yes. Sure. We're producing a daily series that goes uh, uh, every day on, on, uh, in Turkey. We sell it to a lot of licensees around the world, uh, like normal broadcasters and local platforms. But we also put it up directly on YouTube. And the advertising money uh, with different dubs and the advertising money are growing. It's, the CPM is doubling every year. Uh, and uh, so there is, of course, I mean, in the long run, the linear broadcasters will not be I mean, they are super bad actually in selling advertisement compared to Google. Uh, Google is, has a huge inventory and they have not yet understood how to get the um, CPM up. But in the long run, of course, if you, if you hit the, play the strings, what works in the world and you get an audience big enough, then of course uh, we will make a lot of money there. And we're doing it already. The Turkey series are a bit special because they are hundreds of episodes. You have an advertisement every six minutes, which is basically what is advertising TV made for. But it's an interesting case and we're learning a lot. The other thing I think is for feature films, if you think historically, what has been deductible always are the outdoor banners and advertisement and the ads in magazines for, for movies. That has been deducted from the distribution net. Uh, what, uh, and if you think, I don't know how much is actually invested in um, uh, transaction advertisement for a typical movie to actually for, have people to buy TVOD online. I think there is a huge opportunity there. And that's our next step. As soon as the CPM is high enough and the, the revenue per transaction is high enough, then of course we can invest in segments. And that kind of thinking, I think, has a huge potential in feature film. And I assume, I'm not a feature film expert, but I assume that that is fairly undeveloped. It sounds very, like, I mean, it is very, very undeveloped. Do, are you optimistic about this, Linda? Um, I am optimistic about it, but I think it's going to take somebody other than the producer to deal with it. Um, the <clears throat> The most interesting experiment at the moment is um, Level K, which is a sales company in uh, Denmark, has set up a um, um, transactional and advertising um, website where you can, um, and they've they've set it up with the historically uh, most revered art house cinema in in Copenhagen, the Grand Theatre. So they've got uh, a website filled with fantastic films um, that can be rented or purchased. And um, 
And uh, I think it went up almost a year ago. So I'm really looking forward to talking to Tina Clint about the results there, where in Denmark, you can see a lot of high quality films, not just art house. But I wanted to say something really simple. I mean, a, a high quality uh, feature film will sell between um, 20 and 40 countries only. And so there are 150 countries the film never gets to. And that's why I think AVOD and TVOD is so interesting because you can actually access the other 150 countries. Um, but I don't think you can expect a producer to have the time to actually run that business. I, I think this is fascinating and I strongly feel like we're going to have to return to this topic uh, for another episode because there's a lot to to find here, uh, but it is incredibly in, inspiring. Uh, I'm going to ask you in a little while to 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 give some recommendations to our listeners uh, uh, who maybe, let's say that they're producers and, and they're starting to put a new project together. Uh, but before we do that, uh, I have a specific question for you, Petri. Who should come to you and ask for money from the Finnish Impact Film Fund? Someone who has a project that has uh, potential, I mean, to make revenues, uh, if it's a film on the theatrical and sales, if it's a TV drama series in distribution, and uh, the impact part, I mean, means that, I mean, there should be an element from Finland within the project. So it should be somebody behind the scene, behind the camera or of cast or an IP based somewhere in Finland or a location. I mean, it's not it's nothing like the formal requirements that you would have in the co-productions where we are counting the uh, the headcount of people who are involved in Finland. But I mean, basically, there should be some impact. Because the funders who are with the fund, they are, I mean, cultural foundations in Finland. And they want to see, I mean, Finnish talent to go abroad. So there needs to be something like that, but I mean, not very much. So in a way, it's project by project assessment. And uh, of course, I mean, possibility to get some uh, revenues is important. We need to see sales estimates. We need to talk to the distributor quite often and be very transparent with them. And I think that that is quite often happening as well. So I'm quite happy about the discussions that we had with uh, several several partners. Great. And as a native Finn, of course, I am a big booster, sorry, for, for, for the Finnish talent. Linda? Yes. Well, Petri didn't mention the two words that <laughs> have served him through his entire career. He knows quality when he sees it. So add high quality to that list. Yes. Yes. <laughs> Otherwise it won't pass the Petri no. Kipin and filter. That's right. Yeah. That's wonderful. So, yeah, I guess, I guess we're going to have to wrap up. So then the question is, uh, if I'm a producer and I'm setting up a project now or some, I have like a I have a fantastic project that I'm starting to figure out how to place in the market, which means that that we're probably pretty early on. So it's probably going to hit the market in like two years, maybe three years from now. What should I think about today? What should my first steps be? Or do you have any piece of advice that you would give me? Frederick, you go first. I think it depends if it's a very local project or if it's a project with international potential. If it's with international potential, I would start to work with companies like us early. Um, because we can add a lot. And uh, if you don't have a plan when you go to uh, like be a finance source or buyers or whatever, then I think uh, you will not make a very good deal. Uh, and then uh, attach people. Uh, if you if you have, if you be, are you true to yourself? Uh, how experienced are you actually? Or 
uh, will people would you buy this from yourself and so to if if the answer maybe uh, maybe not then i would uh, match with somebody who does so um uh, kind of whatever sharing some of other people's reputation to make it which it which is also natural because maybe that that competence is needed um to and i think americans has been historically better on actually having a lot of people involved to adding different things than up here in europe it feels like a more one-man show sometimes that's very good advice thank you very much petri what advice would you give me with my new hypothetical project with your project i think johanna you should go i mean do one of the uh, markets like uh, Berlinale Series or TV Drama Vision or Series Mania or C21 to get an overdose of the uh, panels and speeches that people are giving out there to understand what's cooking at the market. I think you really need, I mean, as a newcomer, especially to to do your homework very well and you listen to the uh, commissioners and as Frederick was saying also to the uh, distributors who understand the market. So in a way you need to do your homework Uh, by getting absorbed about this information that is being thrown at you at these different venues. And then you know whom to talk to and uh, uh, try to connect with people, I mean, in real life, even though, I mean, we are still living at this Zoom age, but I think it's much more relevant when you get the hold of the persons at the markets. And that might be true for feature films as well. What would you say, Linda? What's your advice? I, I'm I'm going to be the most boring of all of us. Finance plan A, finance plan B, and timelines for both. Finance plan A, finance plan B, and timelines <laughs> for both. I don't think that's boring. I think that's in, incredibly sensible. Yes. <laughs> well, the others are nodding as well. I think we're going to have to end there. Uh, so, I mean, I, I, I can only say thank you very much, Frederika Malmbori, Linda Beef, and Petri Kempiren for joining us today. Thank you. Oh, it was a pleasure, Joanna. Thank you. Nice to talk to you. Thank you. Bye-bye. So much fun. Thanks. Bye. That is all from us today. And I at least feel like I'm looking ahead with cautious optimism. And I am happy for all of that practical advice. Industry Insights is produced by the Berlinales European Film Market in cooperation with Goethe-Institut and co-funded by Creative Europe Media. Today's episode was developed in partnership with the Nostradamus project of the Göteborg Film Festival and do book meetings with my Göteborg Film Festival colleagues in Berlin. If you like what you heard today, do share an episode with a friend or give us a review on your podcasting platform. It really helps. We'll be back in your feed in no time. <laughs>